0: Hi, I'm Stacey Staggs. I'm a mom of twins who are the lights of my life and the reason I use dry shampoo. You're listening to The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation.
1: Hi, I'm Wendy Sheridan, and this is The Leftscape, The Shape of Progressive Conversation.
2: And hi, I'm Robin Renee, and this is Episode 128. Thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah. This season, we are exploring democracy. We are asking questions about how democracy works in the United States and elsewhere, and what we can do to preserve our democratic system and make it better. So far, we've learned about what it's like to join and serve on a local democratic committee, okay. and we've heard stories about the power of grassroots activism and doing whatever you can for what you believe in.
2: And today, we will feature my interview with Stacey Staggs. Stacey is a longtime advocate for access to health care, public education and community inclusion for those with complex medical needs and disabilities. She works with two organizations, Little Lobbyists and Long COVID Families. And before my talk <laughs> with Stacey, Wendy will take us to the Geekscape to tell us about the Sandman.
1: What's been with you since our last show?
2: Oh boy. I cannot even remember since the last show exactly because <laughs> as as we were preparing for the show, I wound up saying, I hate the friggin' news. And it's not that I hate the news. It's that so much happens that I can't even remember what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I feel about the last couple of weeks. I don't know. I, I did go to Virginia this weekend. I went to celebrate a uh, Christmas birthday with my friend, Amy. Cool. That was cool. Um, it, a place in Virginia, which was a, you know, a different, I, I've never been, you know, connected with this particular spiritual community, so it was okay. definitely fun. To so what part of Virginia was it? Northern Virginia, yeah.
1: Okay. Kind of
2: near your old stomping grounds, I So suppose. Fairfax
1: County-ish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, you know, Virginia has, it's a big state. It very much is, <laughs> exactly.
2: Yeah, so it was, you know, a long enough drive, but a doable drive, um. And uh, good times. I enjoyed yeah.
1: it. And, well, uh, we were together at a festival last weekend. Not this past weekend, but the weekend before that. Right. That was in the middle of our two weeks. Oh, it was. <laughs> yes. I know it feels like it time feels is It feels like we illusion. talked about that last
2: time. That's right.
1: <laughs> no, we talked, I think we talked about going to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we went and we had fun and I... <laughs> And we I danced. and we did we danced and sweated. I god, <laughs> I haven't danced up a sweat in so long. Um, and then somebody posted pictures, and oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> I should have worn something i that. I'm <laughs> not happy about that. I was but. sorry. I'm sorry. I was like debating about like, do I really want to tag her? But she should see that there's a picture of her <laughs> at yeah, the dance yeah. class. <laughs> but yeah, there was. I basically spent the entire time I was there in the drum area because we were getting one of our broken drums fixed which is now sounds beautiful by the way uh, you know and it was funny cuz the the woman who, who did the repair work we needed a, a drum headed reheaded So she's, you know, tying the skin down and everything. And she says, don't play it for five days. And like, we get home and and my spouse is like instantly wanting to play it. And I like grab it from him and say, don't touch this for five days. (laughs) (laughs) So like on the fifth day, he's like, it's five days. He's like playing it. (laughs) But it has a really good tone now. And I'm very happy with it. I did a lot of drumming with my stupid little dumb that needs some TLC too. (laughs) Um but yeah, I, I think it was a a good event overall, I think.
2: Yeah, definitely it's cool. Yeah. And actually come to think of it, I've got some new some brief travels coming up, so I'm looking forward to that too. Yeah, you know. Birthday things and devo things coming up in September, <laughs> so that'll all be good. <laughs> <laughs>
1: As always, you can catch a new episode of The Leftscape every other Wednesday. Subscribe to the show on our website, leftscape.com, or find us wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you sign up for automatic downloads so you don't miss the show. And please do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram
2: at Leftscape. I know some of us are not so psyched about social media, but it is how <laughs> we how we can communicate with you for now. <laughs> and you can... Check out our show notes also on the website, which feature links for you to follow our show guests and to get more info on the topics we talk about. And while you're on our site, please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter, The Leftscape Lookout. We will have them again, I promise. (laughs) And your downloads, likes, follows, and subscriptions really do help us grow. And we ask you to give us a review wherever you listen and that's usually what we say but today we we were talking about how little activity we have on our Facebook page and please like just like something or comment on something and it really helps uh our posts become visible to you when you're when you're there so that would really be awesome so please please like or comment and that would be great and we were trying to work
1: that algorithm so <laughs> there you go And on Patreon, supporters can listen to our latest exclusive, We Should Be Recording This. And for August, we're keeping it light, and we're going to be talking about what we are doing to amuse ourselves this summer, Uh, what we're reading, watching, what we're listening to, and where we're going. So join us on Patreon and check that out. Yes.
2: So I have a rewind, (laughs) and it's really just my brain that can't give up random facts basically (laughs) because our last show i was talking about the passing of olivia newton john and wendy asked me if she was a yacht rocker does she have any yacht rock songs (laughs) and i said she's got one officially and i couldn't swear to which which one it was i didn't want to say the wrong thing so i didn't say anything but i had to find out and make sure i got it right (laughs) so yes her one yacht rock song is magic and the interesting thing about it, is it scored exactly 50. So 50 and above is Yacht Rock. Below oh, 50 is I Yacht Rock. Just so, made literally, it. Literally, she just made the boat. <laughs> just squeaked in there. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And she has several other tunes that I would call Yacht Adjacent. Yacht adjacent. And they're <laughs> like in the 40s. So she's got Talk to Me, Make a Move on Me, Deeper Than the Night, and Physical. Those have all been... Placed on the Yatsky scale in the '40s, so okay. she, she just made it. <laughs> so. so, if
1: it's yacht adjacent, does that mean it's rowboat or <laughs> <laughs> uh, dinghy <thingy>. life?
2: <laughs> well, I don't know. I haven't heard those terms, but there is Marina Rock, which is sort of a separate thing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that a lot of people mistake for yacht rock, but that's another whole.
1: <laughs> okay, that's
2: another. <laughs> that's
1: another. I, I could geek out. That's on a that, different geekscape <laughs> exactly. episode. We're going to have to do that, though. <laughs> now we're going to do our random facts in the news. First random fact. Your intestines have more
2: bacteria than the Earth has people. I knew that. Yes, I think most people know that. And well, I
1: always feel terrible when I'm taking antibiotics. because I keep thinking of these massive civilizations in my gut that are having, a, you know, this horrible genocide of everything. Yeah. So. I'm glad I'm not the only person that thinks about that.
2: Because <laughs> it's like you kind of have to, like, I, you have to take a shower. You have to do things that <laughs> c- cause harm to bacteria. But <laughs> I guess I kind of have to let that one slide.
1: Yeah, but they breed quickly. So, yeah. I mean, they do they do get better. And I keep, you know, <laughs> I keep sending more in with my daily yogurts. So, it's, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> And I take—I uh. actually take a probiotic pill, so I'm always like repopulating the the, the gut the gut biome. So, right, right. <laughs> all right, here's my random fact, and it really is random today. <laughs> it's nothing to do with animals. There are 35 populated places in the world named Bristol. <laughs> the vast majority of which are in the United States. There are also two in Canada, and one each in the United Kingdom, Peru, Costa Rica, and Jamaica. And Bristol is the fifth most commonly reused British place name, which, (laughs) okay, it's behind Richmond, which has 55 namesakes, London, which has 46, Oxford with 41, and Manchester, which shares its name with 36 other places. Okay, This is different than the fact that there's two separate church streets in my town that do not connect with each other.
2: That's annoying.
1: (laughs) Oh my god, it sure is. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so I like the Bristol fact
2: because it reminds me of the other fact of the song, The Bristol Stomp, which came out, (laughs) you know, about about Bristol, Pennsylvania, when it came out with all this sort of dance name song type things. (laughs) So... Anyway, that's pretty cool. And anarcho-primitivism is an anarchist critique of civilization that advocates a return to non-civilized ways of life through deindustrialization, abolition of the division of labor or specialization, and abandonment of large-scale organization and high technology. According to anarcho-primitivism, the shift from hunter-gatherer to agricultural subs- subsistence during the Neolithic Revolution gave rise to coercion, social alienation, and social stratification. So they're kind of advocating going back to a feral type state for humans, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah, okay. And you know, it's, you know, whatever I, you think about how practical that would
1: be, <laughs> that's another story. But I think there needs to be like 90% fewer Humans on the planet to actually pull that off in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely
2: uh, more to me more an intellectual exercise than you know the reality would be. Strange.
1: Yeah, but anyway, I, think, I yeah I I don't know. After reading the Dawn of Everything, I I don't agree with agricultural. There that that was like a definite shift. Hmm. You know, their premise is that before we started really doing farming, we were doing, I think, I'm going to paraphrase this, was something called opportuni- opportunistic farming.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, along the, for example, I think the example they were giving was the Nile River Delta. You know, after it floods in the spring, you know, they wouldn't, like, be very deliberately planting seeds in rows, but I think they would just like throw some stuff down there and stuff would grow and then they would harvest it later.
2: Okay.
1: But it's not like, it's not like they were making a farm. They're saying, okay, here's some good wet dirt. Let's put some stuff down there and see what happens kind of thing. Right. And right. then they'd go away for a while and then come back when it was ready. You know, that, that's the kind of early farming that I think was going on. Okay.
2: Interesting.
1: Yeah. Anyway, that's another, that's another show, too. (laughs) (laughs) So those are our random facts. Yeah. And now it's time for all the news we can handle, or maybe slightly more news than we can handle. (laughs) For me, it's more news than I can handle.
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... I just saw an article this morning that talks about Omicron-specific boosters being on the way. I know they have one in the UK, I believe, and there's one in the works in the U.S. uh, to work with the most dominant strains of COVID that we're dealing with right now.
1: Right. It's a Moderna. Moderna's coming up with one. Okay. Very, very cool. That's the one I'm waiting for
2: so that's the point so this article was saying that people are asking like should i get a booster or should i wait and their answer is you should get a booster so if you're when you become eligible for a booster get get your booster is what they said so that's something to consider you know because then by the time the other one becomes available it it'll be going to like the most vulnerable first and then you know right sort of down the line so their thought was it's better to be covered sooner than later so that's mm. that's yeah but CDC i'm in advice.
1: i'm in one of the the first groups because i'm old so
2: okay well yeah you know. if you want to that's fine or you know or if you have a pre-existing pre-existing condition or right. whatever else so i mean you could you could do that but i guess probably their advice would have been you you should have gotten your booster back when you could have yeah before <laughs> <laughs> and now that this one's, you know, if it's really right around the corner, maybe it's okay. But, but they're they were saying like the sooner the better, regardless. Yeah, so well, that's it's, the, that's the general advice to everyone yeah, out there.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, it, but it's for for me personally, it's been five months since I actually had COVID. Oh, right. So I could be still covered under my natural immunity. For From getting over that who knows but I you know I figured I'd be getting it when I do my flu shot and maybe not both at the same time but like you know a week apart or something but right and yeah I get I get flu shots so there's still a war going on in in Ukraine Russians haven't stopped their crap and uh, authorities in Kyiv have banned large public events and gatherings ahead of Ukraine's 31st anniversary of independence from Russian-dominated Soviet rule on Wednesday. People in the capital will not be able to meet up in big groups from Monday till Thursday, owing to the possibility of rocket attacks, according to a document pun- published by the Kyiv Military Administration and signed by its head, Mikola Zirnov. It comes after the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky warned of the risk of more severe attacks before the celebration. So, sorry guys, you can't like have big parties. This yeah, week. that sucks. But I, it I does. understand that for sure. Yeah. We say
2: that yeah. name again. I like that. Which one?
1: <laughs> Mikola <laughs> Mik- Mikola Mikola zirnov <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to say it with the accent I so know, it comes out right.
2: I know. It made me laugh. I like it.
1: <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> um, so this is just it's it's not a typical news but it's weird news for me. There was a shooting in East Mount Airy, PA this uh week ago or so. I don't remember mm. the exact date. And it was uh someone who was playing basketball and someone came up and shot him and he's in was in critical condition. Oh I God. don't know of the current status. But the some bullet holes some bullets hit a friend of mine's house oh, they god. were thankfully not in the in harm's way um, did it actually penetrate through the house i or saw did... some pictures of it yeah oh, like i don't know, so, like, into if the, the house... house but into the into the you know oh so it didn't exterior. go through no, the no it went through okay. the house but thank god yeah but it's just pretty That's weird up. To, yeah that you know i mean <laughs> things like this happen and they're always close to somebody. And it's just weird when you really know someone that's yeah. like, oh, shit, that's really close. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it's huh. uh same
1: as it ever was, sadly. Yeah. All right. Beyond that. Justin Trudeau has nominated an Indigenous woman to Canada's Supreme Court in a landmark appointment after decades of criticism over a lack of Indigenous representation on the country's highest court. Good for him. Mm-hmm. The prime minister announced on Friday that Michelle Obonsowin and see, I'm not, I'm not as good with non-Russian names, um,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Michelle Obansowin had, had been selected to fill an upcoming vacancy on the court. She is an Abenaki member of the O'Donog First Nation, has been a judge at Ontario's Superior Court of Justice in Ottawa since 2017. And she's also taught law at the University of Ottawa and earlier worked in legal services for the RCMP and Canada Post. And congratulations. And I am not holding my breath for when we do this (laughs) in the United States, but I am pleased to see that that at least Canada's indigenous population seems to be getting a little bit of something back from the country after all of the awfulness that's been happening with them over you know since Canada was colonized by the british yeah yeah all right well progress <laughs> slow yeah slow but progress yes exactly so here's another uh
2: from our Foreign correspondent, (laughs) (laughs) us trying our best. Um, I I just this—I found this story so funny. So Scott Morrison, who was the uh, Prime Minister of Australia, apparently had given himself a bunch of extra jobs in secret. Oh my god! He's still, he's currently still a lawmaker, but he's re- been replaced as prime minister after last May's election. But he was appointed as minister of health, finance, home affairs, treasury, and industry.
1: Between, Are those all separate jobs? They're all separate jobs. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> between March 2020 and May of 2021. And they were all significant oh cabinet roles, but they already had ministers in place. So he, he gained extensive additional powers. <sighs> by being sworn in as the minister of those departments. But he he, he kept it from most <laughs> of the people who was working with so that wow. the actual, like the current person in that role didn't know that he had secretly given himself extra jurisdiction over that department Wow! at the time it was happening. So it just sounds, it, it was just so absurd. And it just reminded me of <laughs> our former guy saying things like, oh, well, I declassified all of those things I took, home with me it you know even though there were no records of him ever have done doing any such thing and that you couldn't actually do that for some of them so
1: it was just it just was like in the absurdity department <laughs> for yeah me. i i'm kind of really amazed that there's a loophole that lets the prime minister do that i never there. heard of such a thing <laughs> it, it, i wow that's all i can say is Australia's pretty wacky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think this guy specifically is pretty, is pretty wacky. <laughs> <laughs> He's probably one of the main reasons <laughs> that Australia is wacky. I don't know. Right. Uh, and in our final piece of news today, for the first time in 75 years, hatchlings of the world's smallest sea turtle species have been discovered on the Chandelure Islands, a chain of barrier islands in the Gulf of Mexico off of the coast of New Orleans. The peak of sea turtle nesting season runs from June through July, with most hatchlings beginning to emerge 50 or 60 days later, which is kind of nowish. Additional nests may be discovered in the weeks to come, according to the Coastal Authority. And in addition to Kemp's ridleys, which are the kind of tiny which are the smallest sea turtle species they're called Kemp's Ridleys. Wildlife experts have also discovered the threatened loggerhead sea turtles nesting on the islands. So that's some good news Yeah. which we're gonna wrap up our news with. Yeah <laughs> sea turtles are happy news. Yeah <laughs> and that is all the news we are handling today. Are you helping someone run for office? Are you running for office yourself? Going to a protest and can't think of what to write on your sign? Are you tired of seeing BLM or Let's Go Brandon? Then you want the Sloganator. We at the Leftscape have curated a special set of slogans for your next protest or campaign. Visit leftscape.com slash sloganator and voila! You will receive a fresh new slogan for your sign. That's leftscape.com slash sloganator. Right Fascinating. okay right Fascinating. Forget. Flash made. Fascinating. Fascinating. Are you on your bulk of mind?
2: Fascinating. Okay. No computer. Stand by to receive our
1: compassionate. Welcome to the Geekscape, where today you're gonna to hear me geek out about Neil Gaiman's Sandman TV series, which dropped on Netflix uh, a little over a week ago, two weeks ago. <laughs> time um, is meaningless. <laughs> I, it totally is meaningless. Um, I have my sense of time is gone now completely. I have to kind of wake up and I go, okay, it is Monday today. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, the Sandman was also a long graphic novel. I want to say it's Marvel. Uh, it talks about um, which was out, I think, twenty-ish, twenty-five, maybe thirty years ago. I have all of them. I didn't read it when it was coming out. I read it probably ten or fifteen years ago. And all of my friends who had read it, going, "Oh, I'm so jealous of you! You're getting to read it for the first time." Blah blah blah. And so, for someone this, who's completely clueless, okay, The Sandman is about a group of beings that are called the endless and this guy is named his name is morpheus and he is the king i guess of dreams that his his domain is dreams his other siblings are thing are people are are creatures like name their death desire delirium there's others besides that i don't remember who their what their names are but i believe they all start with the letter d for some reason and let's see death is is female and um delirium in the tv series is non-binary and uh <gasps> Uh, desire desire yeah. is a non-binary one i don't think we've really we kind of met delirium in the series but she hasn't done much yet i think you know there there are a lot of different chapters and movements in the series of the graphic novel i haven't like i said i haven't read it in 50 15 years or so so i don't re i don't know which exact part of the comic they were translating in the in the 10 episodes that are in a, in a story arc. And then Netflix over the weekend released another two stories in one 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 hour format. And one of them is... Those are little standalone stories. And there's a, quite a few of those in the comic. Um, my favorite one of the comics was, I think, collected in the second or third p- trade paperback. And it was... It was basically Midsummer Night's dream, but told from, told in this universe, like dream, like Morpheus gave Midsummer Night's dream as a dream to Shakespeare. Hmm. So that whole book is like six, six episode six uh, issues of the comic kind of go into that. And I, that was my favorite uh, out of the whole thing. And they didn't get to that one yet. I mean, they kind of, Shakespeare kind of shows up. A little bit in one of the episodes and they kind of hint that he's getting his ideas from Morpheus and and other things that you don't know if you didn't read the comics is he's got like this enormous library in his palace and and all of the books in the library are all of the unwritten books that, like, if you you know you you you're thinking of, like, if you're just like this person saying, I, you know, you you're dreaming about writing this book and you never actually get to do it. That book is there. Oh wow! In Dreams Library, you know, I and I thought that was a really cool addition that that he put in there. And they they don't talk about that yet. So, uh, <laughs> and I guess I guess I should have put a spoiler warning up ahead of time, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I I will spoil this. I I know that the certain people out in the world have been complaining about their choice of casting. Yeah, you know, they cast a, a black woman to play Death, and I think she's fine. I only just missed the little curly cue that they put on her eye in the comic that they're not putting on her makeup, and I, I kind of missed that. But other than that, she really does encapsulate Death in the comic and she's you know she's good she's good in her role so are people complaining that they don't like
2: to see a black person because they they weren't black in the comic or are they are people complaining that a black person was com like cast as something negative as like death
1: no no well death death in this in this context is not really a negative he she's she's very similar in some ways to death in, in Terry Pratchett's universe, okay. uh, the Discworld. you know, it, it's, she's there. I mean, she's, I mean, honestly, some of the scenes were really funny because, you know, when, when somebody dies, you get, it's like they come out of the, they visually come out of their body and, and they interact with her mm. and, you know, and there's sometimes humorous conversations that can happen, especially if they, don't quite get that they're dead yet Uh. you know (laughs) it's it's funny that i I, it's funny no but the the complaints were she i don't think she's necessarily drawn white but she's not necessarily drawn black either in the comic right um and people get bent out of shape if any of their characters change any if reading, right. right, and if you're reading a comic and and it's like, let's say everything is black and you know it's not colored in, for example, right? You know, you're, they're they're going to default to I want them to look like me, so or or to be you know, because I I you know I'm reading the comic, I'm really identifying with the character of Death, mm-hmm. and I really think she's cool, so I wanted her, you know, so I, I'm putting myself in that role, so you know, in that in that context, she's a white woman. But, you know, on TV, she's a black woman and, and, you know, the hair is right and everything is right. So it's fine. I and, and I think, you know, some it could be some of these stylistic choices in the comic were made based on when it was published. And, you know, the editors of the publishers are saying, now you can't have all these black characters. Right. Because then no one's going to want to read it. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. That, no, I totally get thing. the the history of how that's happened, and I'm uh, I'm less charitable uh, than what you just said about people who can really get bent out of shape about <laughs> characters uh, evolving into other, you know, I'm whatever to...
1: demographic they are yeah, in the current I mean, it's,
2: episodes. Well, you know.
1: Yeah. It's it. Well, I mean, the like the queer character is very much. Well, you know, I don't really know if he's if they're over the top compared to the comic, because the comic, you know, it's like I said, it's been a while since I've read it and I didn't want it to really influence my reactions to the TV show. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, my daughter's borrowed my first issue and she's reading it. So I can't even go back and reread it right now to, to talk about this. Cause it's, I don't have it right now, but she wanted to read the comic before watching the show, mm-hmm. which I have found with other work, that it's better not to have a really up-to-date, accurate remembrance of the source material because then you won't get upset when things change. Right. As I, I did that with a different game in, with the the movie Stardust because I had read the book years before the movie came out and I remembered the very broad strokes which they covered in the movie and other people who remembered it more accurately had complaints about the movie and I didn't want to have complaints about the movie I liked the movie so so it was like it's better to have it like the faded the fuzzy memory of something and say oh yeah I kind of remember there was a goat char- a goat chariot here you know for example and, right right and, and I thought goat chariot was like one of the best things she, there was a witch in that, and and she's riding this goat chariot, and it looks, and it was, um, huh. it's Michelle, not like Michelle Pfeiffer, it was Michelle Pfeiffer. <laughs> and she's in this, like, really cool outfit, and she's riding this goat chariot, and it's like, <laughs> this is amazing. So, anyway. I think I need um, a goat chariot. <laughs> I think we all need goat chariots. <laughs> so, what is the
2: crux of... Well, like what, what makes this an important work for
1: you or what makes you oh, really love um, it? well, you know, he has, Gaiman has a, a really interesting way to view the world. You know, there, there are th- entities that Dream creates and, and, and this is like one of the bad guys in, in the show it's a really creepy guy who has basically mouths where eyes would be. So there's like teeth in there and oh. the, the teeth in his mouth. He's called the Corinthian. I hated that character, but he's That's like the creepy. main bad guy in season one. Mm-hmm. And and they do him really well. He's incredibly creepy. <laughs> and and uh, he murders people all over the place. and And the premise in... This season is this This guy uh, uses this occult and arcane knowledge that he has, and he's trying to trap death in order to force death to get to release his son who was killed in World War I. Hmm. Okay. So he does the ritual, but he doesn't get death. He gets dream, and he's trapped there for years, for a very long time, and so everybody's dreams are fucked up for most of the early mid 20th century. (laughs) So, and the Corinthian kind of gets loose and he's running around doing things and, and eventually, you know, dream escapes and, and tries to fix things and get revenge and do all this other stuff. And the two standalone pieces that, Netflix released that I just watched them like yesterday. So they're really, really fresh in my mind as opposed to the series. (laughs) And were these like surprise bonus episodes or something like that? I think so. The one with the cats was really, is animated, but it's really, really well done. It's short. And then the rest of the, it's like 10 or 15 minutes. And the rest of the hour is these, this other story called Calliope. And it's about, this writer who gets, it, it figures out how to bind this muse to him so he can write all these great things mm. and how she wants to be set free. Wow. So it, it's really good. <laughs> That's all I can say. If you have Netflix and you haven't seen any of this yet, I recommend go see it. Uh, it's worth your while. It's, you know, the Corinthian part is a little scary there's a little bit of you know the murders are not what i would call clean so there's there's some blood and gore but not as much as a whole bunch of other stuff that i've been seeing it's i probably would give this an r rating or at least a pg-13 you know but yeah i i think it's worthwhile and I'm looking forward to more of this, to, that, to, to do the rest of the story. And I know um, Neil Gaiman really, he, what it, he's, he's tweeted, he's done a lot of tweeting about this, you know, especially, especially to his fanboys who have been complaining about like casting and everything else. He's, he's spent, I think, like 20 or 25 years making sure that nobody did a shit version of this. Mm. And now he has, you know, especially after his production of Good Omens on on uh, Amazon, which was his collaboration with Terry Pratchett. After his his doing with that, I think he's he's figured out how to negotiate with the studios to get his vision realized. And good for him because some of the you know his stuff is is certainly worth watching. So. Awesome. So, the, yeah, so that's the Geekscape today. Thanks for <laughs> geeking out, Wendy.
2: <laughs> well, we are here, well, we, I am here, <laughs> speaking with Stacey Staggs. Uh, Stacey Staggs is a wife and mom to twin girls who are the lights of her life. And those girls also live with complex medical needs and disabilities. Since their birth, uh, she has been advocating for their access to healthcare, public education, and community inclusion. Stacy volunteers across a number of groups, mainly as the director of community engagement for Little Lobbyists and a consultant at, with uh, Long COVID families, both of which are nonprofit organizations. So, welcome, Stacy, to the Leftscape.
0: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
2: Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Healthcare is such a hugely important issue and has been the source of deep political divisions for a long time, really. But first, I'd really like to hear more about your personal story. What would you like to share about the birth and
0: the needs of your twins? Well, I have lots to share about <laughs> about our family. Um, thanks for that question. I- So my husband and I um, were ecstatic to find out that we were pregnant, Uh, surprised to learn that we were having twins and, um, you know, went about the business of preparing the nursery, you know, getting things in order. Um, My pregnancy was going along great until one day it wasn't. At 27 weeks, I developed preeclampsia. I went to the hospital not having any idea of how serious all of it was. When I called the doctor, she said, yeah, just, you know, go down to the hospital. They'll do some testing and monitoring, make sure everything's okay. So very regretfully, I did not take a shower. I did not pack a bag. I kicked on my flip-flops, grabbed a water bottle, and we were on our way. When I walked into the hospital room, there were 10 people there ready to do different things. And that was my first sense that we might be in danger. Mm -hmm. I was monitored over the next 22 hours. Um, We did get the first shot of surfactant um, that's supposed to stimulate lung development. Uh, For the girls and the second shot comes 24 hours later so we didn't quite make that threshold. Um, But what was happening is my preeclampsia was worsening and becoming it eventually slid into something else called help syndrome, um, which is really just multi system failures.
2: Wow. Could you give a, a definition of the first uh, preeclampsia
0: as well? Sure. Um, sure. Preeclampsia is actually a fairly common uh, complication in, in pregnancies. Um, it's some is less severe, some is more severe. Um, mine be, being HELP syndrome actually went to the very severe and pretty quickly. Uh, but it's basically a high heart rate and a concern about seizure uh, as well as um difficulty in the extremities. So swelling typically, like water retention and all, uh, is a a typical sign of preeclampsia. And it's something that doctors and pregnant people watch for um, because it can go bad very quickly. Um, For my instance, um, the preeclampsia became HELP syndrome, which is uh, elevated liver enzymes, low platelets, and a high heart rate that requires immediate treatment. And the treatment is emergency C-section. So when the doctor started explaining that to us, I, we had to Google it. We had to look it up and really got an idea of how, just how grave the situation was. Um, When the doctor uh, made the call for us to go into the OR, um, my husband didn't have time to put on scrubs and he wasn't allowed in the OR anyway. They had to put me fully under Um, And they had to move very quickly. There was no setting up a screen or anything like that. So the girls were born on a Wednesday. They were whisked to the neonatal intensive care unit, um, weighing one pound, nine ounces for Emma and two pounds for Sarah. They were transported very quickly and oddly in Ziploc bags um, for heat retention. Um, I spent the next few days on a um, magnesium drip uh, to help me stabilize, and I wasn't able to see the girls in the NICU until Saturday. In those few days, my husband and my sister were ferrying 1 ml and 5 ml syringes of breast milk uh, down to the NICU um, so the girls could get that little bit um, that I had. But we really, it took us a long time to understand that not only were the girls in danger, but my husband came close to losing all three of us. And it's nothing short of a miracle that that he didn't. So the girls spent time in the NICU. Emma's medical road has been harder. Um, she contracted an infection on day eight, and she herself went into multi-organ failure. Um, the doctors were preparing us to lose her. At that point, she was more wires than anything else. Um, I, I had not been able to hold either of my children. And my husband and I sat there in the, um, at the bedside uh, next to the isolette and a tower of IVs and machines um, they pulled the curtain for privacy. I always joke that that's not really soundproof, but <laughs> it's the littlest bit of privacy that we could get. And we we talked honestly about how, how do you do that? How do you go forward? We haven't done birth announcements and I don't know how to then share terrible news like that. Thankfully, uh, Emma is stronger than me, and she survived. Um, She was on 15 days of multiple antibiotics and started to, you know, her systems restarted. By that, I mean digestive, uh, her renal system, just every piece of her um, fought through it and, and fought for every breath. I was able to hold her finally on her 28th day. Even that required multiple bedside nurses, a respiratory therapist, and the charge nurse, um, scheduling all of her personnel on standby so that if Emma's vitals started to tank, they could you know, swoop in uh, and save her again. Her sister Sarah, her sister Sarah did end up having to have uh, heart surgery when she was about two weeks old, um, still just two and a half pounds, And too small and fragile to go to the operating room. So they did the surgery in the NICU. Um, Once Sarah's heart surgery was completed, um, she blossomed. She was on room air within 24 hours. She started to have like facial expressions. Um, Her eyes were tracking. She um, was learning how to, you know, she was tolerating. Uh, more breast milk. Uh, it, eventually, we did have to switch to formula. Um, I wasn't able to keep up with them. So Sarah spent the rest of her time in the NICU really just growing and learning how to take a bottle. Um, she was in for 98 days and um, came home without any need for additional support. Um, you know, she was breathing on her own. She was maintaining her body temperature. She could eat and swallow. You know, a, That was, that was the miracle that we had been hoping for the whole time. Emma was in the NICU a little bit longer, 110 days. And, um, she had a lot of stops and starts. She needed multiple interventions. Um, she was resuscitated. And eventually the doctor started talking to us about a tracheostomy tube to to help her breathe, um, for the duration of Emma's NICU stay, she was on mechanical ventilation. She was intubated. It's a plastic tube that, that goes down your throat and, and, you know, drives air to your lungs. When they started talking to us about a tracheostomy tube, we had to Google that too. You know, the, the hospital, it's a whole other language, um, you know, clinical words and and just the way that doctors and nurses talk to each other, we want to make sure we understand as much as we can, but we were learning on the fly under very dire circumstances. And eventually, I think it was four days before Christmas on the girl's actual due date uh, that Emma was able to have the tracheostomy uh, surgery. She had to grow enough uh, to be able to fit the world's smallest trach. Um, which was uh, so her body weight had to be five pounds. When she came home from the hospital in January of that year, she needed a lot of support. I've always believed in the in the need for you know healthcare and Medicare and Medicaid and you know whatever people need in their lives to help them live independently or as independently as they can have self determination and agency. All of that's really important. I just didn't know how to navigate all of that. Um, so when Emma came home and we had case managers, I want to say the hospital support was phenomenal. Um, and moving us from hospital to home was done, I think as well as it could have been done, but Emma did require in-home nursing. Her nursery looks like a hospital room. It has all the same machines. She is formula fed by a a tube that was also surgically implanted to her belly and the tracheostomy that is her airway. Um, she still lives with it. We're, we're nine years down the road. Um, the girls turned nine in September. Um, and Emma has yet to take an unassisted breath.
2: Wow. So what, so what are some of the things that you, thank you for sharing all that too. That's a lot. I know it's a lot. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm, um, You've all have a lot of strength, you know, to to come through all this. So I just want to say that for sure. So what are some of the things that you had to learn about the, well, put it this way. I know you've had to advocate so much for your family and health needs. And I guess that has expanded into advocacy for others and you know how tell me a little bit about how that has come about for you sure
0: um so when i came home from the hospital with you know still all kinds of support nursing equipment monitors and all of that we spent several years figuring that out navigating primary insurance medicaid for her how to work with a nursing agency and get a team of nurses that were—they're um, all good, they're all trained, uh, but also you know who want to stay in the field of in-home nursing and are consistent in the the high level of care that they provide. Emma has a nurse eighteen hours a day, and that's—we're lucky. I'm sure we all are aware of the national nursing shortage, shortage of healthcare workers overall, particularly nurses and particularly home healthcare nurses, because in part, the pay is less than what they can get at the hospitals. Um, so there is a, a, a shortage and a high turnaround, uh, turnover in, in home nursing. And, you know, consistency of care is something that's very important for patient outcomes. Um, so that is something that we spent years and still occasionally grapple with. Um, We're just feeling a little more established. And of course, my husband and I are fully capable caregivers. We know all of Emma's emergency protocols, how all of the machines work, how to troubleshoot, you know, everything that's needed. That was all training on the fly, you know, while she was in crisis and while we were at the house. So it took us a long time to kind of get our feet under us. I didn't, regretfully, I didn't spend much time in the 2016 election um, because my world was very small at that point. It was the four of us in the four walls of our home and making it to the next day, the next feeding, the next nursing shift. But I had faith in the process and the system, and I couldn't imagine a different outcome than Hillary Clinton becoming the president and you know whatever next steps that meant for us. Um, so, And I went to bed on election night feeling good and comfortable. Um, The next morning when I woke up and heard that, uh, in fact, Trump had won the electoral college uh, election, I immediately walked to my daughter's room. She was still sleeping. The hum of the machines and monitors were going and I fell to the floor and cried because I knew we were in trouble. Trump had campaigned on repealing the Affordable Care Act. He is not a, a proponent of health care access or public education or community inclusion. Um, so it became very quickly a need to survive the administration. Um, and being in North Carolina, we are under a Republican-led state legislature. Um, some of the most rabid Trump supporters uh, sit in the North Carolina general assembly. And um, he's even pulled from the NCGA for his own staff. Mark Meadows uh, came from Mm -hmm. NCGA. Um, So it wasn't just at the national level, which, you know, there are a number of layers before it gets to the household. Um, But at the state level that there were, there were people determined to yank healthcare access from families like mine. And I should mention one of the great things about the Affordable Care Act, and I could talk about that for days, but one of the great things about the Affordable Care Act is the end of lifetime limits on claims. And we all know healthcare is very expensive. We're paying way too much for premiums and you know procedures and point of service, but, um, Having that lifetime cap on claims is something that causes medical bankruptcy for families prior to the ACA. When my girls left the NICU before their first birthday, they were already over a million dollars in claims. They were already over a million dollars in claims and they would have been uninsurable. The insurance companies could just say, nope, sorry, you're too expensive. Pay on your own until the wheels fall off. And that is what families were doing, you know, mortgaging their house, going on to uh, government assistance, um, you know, combining households and all of that stuff. So that was a real fear for me because Emma is going to need help for as long as she lives. And I want that to be a long time. But I know that the care she requires is expensive. Not because of anything that she's done, not because of anything that I've done. It just is. Sure. So. I think it was the summer of 2017 when Congress convened and they did the unthinkable. Uh, It was the House first that um, repealed the Affordable Care Act. And they they had something, I think it was called the American Health Care Act, but it was a misnomer. It wasn't any of the things that the Affordable Care Act was. And I remember that day, I can't remember the calendar date, but I remember that day that House representatives, including some from my state, ordered beer to the Rose Garden or the 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 floor the floor of the Capitol to celebrate the fact that they had just repealed the Affordable Care Act.
2: Oh, I had forgotten about that whole episode. <laughs> the, the things happen so fast, or it seemingly it's it's like that's right, that happened too. Yeah. What what do you believe are the dividing lines like? In understanding hmm. between people who believe healthcare for all is important and for those who believe or actively fight against it, like you're talking about, like I, do you have a sense of the fundamental philosophies that the differences or what what's actually going on in that mindset? I have
0: I have thoughts about it, and I don't I I don't know if it's right. It's just what I feel from what I've seen. Uh, the division is privilege those who have and those who have not. When I say privilege, I mean all of the socioeconomic factors, but particularly health. If you have always been healthy, whatever that means for you, and you haven't navigated the healthcare system, you haven't had to choose between filling a prescription and groceries, you haven't lived for months or years at a time in a medical or skilled nursing facility, then you really don't have a handle on how precarious the whole thing is. We're seeing that a lot in the world of COVID survivors who, you know, have persistent symptoms, um, some that rise to the level of disability and, you know, never thought that it would happen to them. Um, and I'll be honest when, when my girls were born, I was, I was squarely in that camp. I had no reason to think that we, everything wouldn't go right. So it is a very jarring shift when you find you do need healthcare. You do need assistance. You do need people to care about what happens outside of their own home. And then you're confronted with the absolute, Stark reality that a lot of people don't. Um, when I started doing advocacy work, it was because I was sitting in my daughter's room and I could not abide what I was seeing in Congress. So I, like a lot of people, went on social media, found people that I could find, cried for help, made phone calls. I had a meeting with um, one of my uh, state senators, is Tom Tillis. I had a meeting with his staff and cried on their conference table (laughs) trying to explain the reality of what caregivers are asked to do in this country. And um, I don't know if it fell on deaf ears, but it hasn't changed any of his subsequent votes. And I think that's the different, the dividing line is whether you've gone through it or not, and whether you care what happens to other people besides yourself. There's a, there's a, a, it's kind of a great, oh, I don't want to say I'm asking. It's a great revelation in this country that there are some people who only who have, have a very narrow vision. They only care about themselves and the people that they can see, the people in their household. And then there are others of us who understand that everything is connected. We fail or succeed together. And it does matter what's happening to other people. Um, I'm very clearly on that side and I have a hard time making sense of people who see what all is happening in our country and in our world and don't and can't make that bridge to it matters what happens to other people um, that makes the conversations hard
2: yes I would imagine can you give us some highlights about the Uh, some of the successes that you've had in the organizations you're working with right now?
0: Yes. Oh, greatly. Um, So in that same summer of 2017, the house voted to repeal the affordable care act. It was coming to the Senate across the country. Regular people who maybe weren't so politically aware, became aware of this uh, threat and made phone calls and, went to their legislators' offices. And for those who are, you know, live in the D.C. area uh, or, or travel to the D.C. area, they would go to the halls of the Capitol. Uh, and that's actually how Little Lobbyists was born. It was families in Maryland saying, we're not that far away. We could just go down to the Capitol and see if anybody wants to talk to us. So it was supposed to be one day. It was, I think it was four families. And they brought all the things that their kids needs. You know, there's mobility assistance, there's uh, portable ventilators, uh, there was a service animal, nurses. Like, you know, we're a conspicuous group, and just walking the hallways, they were able to get conversations. Um, you know, with with legislators. Um, Elizabeth Warren actually is one that came to us. Not me, I wasn't there, but came to little lobbyists, and she said. I love this. What's going on? How can I help? What are you doing? Tell me your stories. Um, That's great. <laughs> and, you know, the, uh, the the momentum built from there. Uh, Senator Cory Booker is another just phenomenal little lobbyist fan and, you know, wants to talk to the children and engage with the families and, you know, tell us what we need to know. And it just, it became More visits, more meetings, more conversations. Um, We were on, again, not me, but little lobbyists were on the Capitol uh, fields when in the Senate, the skinny repeal failed because of Senator John McCain's thumbs down vote.
2: That was iconic.
0: (laughs) In the middle of the night.
2: (laughs) Right.
0: Um, I, I was here in North Carolina watching from my bed through tears, thinking I had definitely miscounted. But yeah, like that, that, those are seminal moments in all of this. And it wasn't until later that other senators came to us and said that the, the visual immediacy of our kids being in the building. And actually hearing stories and putting faces to the issues, you know, helped them have more conversations and they were able to, you know, eventually get that vote passed. So there are some circles that credit little lobbyists as part of the efforts to save the Affordable Care Act. Um, And that's a that's a really phenomenal thing. It's, It's done a lot of good for a lot of people. And then once it was saved, of course, we now need to defend it and expand it. So there was a lot of time spent under the previous administration in fighting things like um, work requirements for Medicaid. There was a there was an attempt for Medicaid block grants. Uh, I think that was I don't want to get it wrong. I forget which state that was in, but block grants, you know, were were put forth by the CMS director, Seema. Uh, Verma, I think was her last name. And we were able to successfully fight that off through the same type of advocacies, telling our stories, being at the table. You know, it's it's hard to look away from a family like ours. <laughs> and that's part of the point. Uh, we, we want to be full participants in society. And there are millions. I don't know if people understand how many people with disabilities you engage with every single day. Uh, Because not all disabilities are visible. But it's more than a quarter of Americans have something happening that, that reaches the level of a disability. And they still have every right, the same as anyone else, to be in the community, to hold a job, to go to school. Um, you know, to, to do the things that people do, have a family. It's not different. It's been made different because of laws and, you know, societal norms that become laws and all of that. But there's nothing intrinsic that's different about anybody with a disability.
2: Um, right. I've been, I've been watching uh, some stories about people who get a lot of flack for using their, their parking placard <laughs> for disabilities. If they have an invisible disability and people will look at them and say, well, you, do, you don't deserve that spot. And we'll like sit and argue with them in the parking lot. Mm-hmm. And it's how do you know? You don't know this person at all, you know? Yeah. It's very bizarre. Try this bizarre.
0: Size. There's a thing called an ambulatory wheelchair user. Uh, someone who only needs a wheelchair sometimes if they fatigue and you cannot look right. at someone and say whether or not they're disabled. So yeah, that's a real, there's, there's a weird gatekeeping about people with disabilities and what we should be able and allowed to do, which makes no sense to me at all. You know, I see my girls making their way in the world and I want them to do everything that everybody else can do. I want them to be in school and and in a classroom. I want them to have friends and way down the road, Uh, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, but like all of the things that you wish for your children, I wish for my children too. And the barriers that are in place are completely arbitrary and made up. Like it's not a failure on our side. It is a failure of society as a whole to include all the people who live in it. And that's, it's frustrating, um, but, but that's, what we're, that's what we're ultimately fighting for: is equal access to everything.
2: Sure, sure. So, for people who want to help, they may have themselves or family members issues that pertain to you know healthcare and medical issues. I guess we all, on some level, have to interact with this mm-hmm. world. You know, so what are some of the things that people can do now? You have a couple of organizations that you work with. There's little lobbyists and there's long COVID families. Is that right? Yes, long COVID
0: families. Um, So that was actually a group that was born uh, also out of necessity. It's a disability-led organization, which is important. And having people who are close to the power be close in proximity and close with the issue. And I know I just butchered Ayanna Presley's famous statement. Um, But Basically, it's centering the people who, the ones who need, you know, who should have the voice. We want to pass the mic to the people who are close to, closely directed to it. Long COVID Families is based, I'm sorry, it's a national nonprofit, and they seek to pull together resources for people who are emerging with the knowledge that, you know, COVID wasn't a quick or mild thing for them. Whether they were hospitalized initially or, you know, were were able to ride it out at home, there are things like, uh, you know, the COVID brain fog. I'm sure there's a medical term for it, but uh, fatigue, muscle weakness, I guess, or, you know, different kind of autoimmune things that are happening to people. And it's, it's tough to explain again, because it's not visible, But it's also for a lot of people, it's just how you recover from being sick. Like if you're sick, then you would rest and recover. If you've been resting and you need to rest for months on end, maybe something's wrong. And then if you go to a a doctor to try and sort it out, you know, medical provider awareness is something that we're working on as well, because, you know, you could have a doctor who maybe doesn't, isn't up to date on long COVID or whatever those symptoms are, or doesn't, you know, believe there are people in the medical field who don't believe that COVID is such a damaging thing. Um, and they're not wearing masks and their office is on masks and it's amazing. So, you know, no, no group is a monolith and, you know, depending on the doctor that you go to, they might steer you one way or another. So we've put together resources for patients to talk to their providers uh, and you know terminology to use so that they can correctly convey what their symptoms are and then get the support that they need. Long COVID families actually also has a focus on pediatrics um, because mm-hmm. for a long time, mm-hmm. early on, there was I don't know where this came from, but there was a, a talking point that, you know, kids aren't really at risk. In fact, kids weren't being tested. So there were rampant COVID cases that just went unnoticed. And thankfully, most of them weren't severe in the acuity, but they are having, you know, developmental and longer term impacts. So we're starting to see some of that now. And Long COVID Families has actually put together a back to school conference that we are doing, I think it's the week of the 22nd, Uh, 22nd of august of august okay Um, yeah just in a few weeks here um where we're going to talk about things like how to recognize symptoms Uh, first of all prevention you know masks uh ventilation being in open spaces not being in crowds all the things we've been hearing all along and then if you get covid now what tracking symptoms having a, a you know a symptom log understanding the terminology to help you talk with the provider. And then also the things that I'm doing, the advocacy in the public space. So awareness that a long COVID is a thing, B kids are getting it Uh, and c they're going to need accommodations at school. They might need community accommodations, you know, whether it becomes an IEP or not, but that's something that I and my own family have gone through. So we'll be talking about, Um, you know, how to navigate all of that. And then another piece that I have had to dive into just again, out of necessity is engaging with the school district and the school board. Anyone who hasn't been to a school board meeting in the last two years, you're missing out. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff that's happening there. And some of it needs to be challenged. So that is something that I'm doing as well, being a voice of reason and um, you know, pro-student, pro-child. There's a lot of conversations that happen without the immediate stakeholders. And I think that's where it always goes wrong. When we're talking about student outcomes, students have to be at the table. When we're talking about what teachers need to be successful, teachers have to be at the table. When we're talking about patients with long COVID and how to support them, patients have to be at the table. And that. so with the long COVID families back to school conference, that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about. We've got experts in different fields uh, and then regular people like me. And I think that, you know, as we're looking at going back to school, uh, it, there's a real growing gap in reality. And our response, um, you know, we're we're going back to school without mask mandates, in subpar ventilation in most schools across the country, and still an incredibly low vaccine uptake rate. So th- the public health messaging has been hard to follow, uh, and I think that it's given people comfort where they should feel some urgency it's not inevitable that everybody gets COVID. It's not. Two and a half years into this, we're looking at about half the state population that I live in um, having reported it. So it's not inevitable, but the protections and the layers of protection need to be in place. And how to manage all of that while in an election cycle and trying to, you know, get out the vote and canvas for the candidates that you want like that's a hard thing to balance but it's also a necessary thing
2: that is a very good reminder absolutely so we will uh make sure we give people the information about the organizations you work with we're gonna keep advocating that we you know get involved wherever we can from the local levels which is always a good reminder Mm -hmm. for me definitely i i can it's easy to focus on the national races and things like that but you know, the school boards matter. It all, it all does matter. So I appreciate that reminder.
0: Um, If I may, I'll say that most national politicians started locally for my, one of my targets, uh, Tom Tillis, who's our, who's our federal Senator. Um, He started on a town council and he is who he was then. So yeah, local elections are very important. It's, it's, it's everything from how your schools run, how, how good your roads look, is your hospital staff, like all of those things happen at the local level. Um, and it rolls up federally, of course, but.
2: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with us.
0: Yeah. thanks for, for sharing
2: me. your thoughts on the left
0: I very much appreciate it. I, you know, I could talk for days, but <laughs> 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 for the opportunity to share. Um, and I hope that, you know, I hope it helps someone step out of their comfort zone and maybe go to a school board meeting or, you know, check in on a neighbor um, who might be struggling and, you know, just remember that we're all in this together.
2: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: Uh, We don't have questions. We don't got
2: answers. (laughs) So yeah, no one uh, sent us a question this time. So we're just gonna not make one up.
1: No, (laughs) we're not gonna answer. We have nothing to say to you guys. Yeah, yeah. But please
2: (laughs) do, we really like doing this section and we like questions that are from serious to absurd. So uh, please send them and we will get them on here.
1: Yeah, and send them them via Facebook, via our website, via text. If you know us, <laughs> and, yes, uh, and you can always email us at insight at
2: leftscape.com. That oh, will yeah, always reach that us too. there too. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, please do ask us stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, <laughs> I'm going to sign off. So. Thanks for being here. I'm Robin Renee, and you can find me on Facebook at Robin Renee Fan or Instagram at Robin Renee Music and on Twitter at Spirit Rock Sexy. And if you are on Discord, let me know if you've got any uh, things I should join there, any servers. I am Andrew
1: Genus over on Discord. And I'm Wendy Sheridan, and you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Wendy Cards, on Twitter at Wendy Designs, and on Etsy at Wendy Cards with a Z. And remember,
2: you can always reach out to us on social media at Leftscape. So please do. And we look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, be well. well.
1: Sweet dreams. And keep left. You've been listening to the Leftscape podcast. Sound engineering by Wendy Sheridan. Show notes by Robin Renee. Fake sponsor messages by Ariel Sheridan. Web hosting by InMotion. Remote recording by Squadcast. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Leftscape. Become a patron of our show for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com leftscape. Thanks for listening.